Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I am coming to you today from my home near Blaine Lake, Saskatchewan on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. I have with me Sarah Poirier, who is a science communicator and the owner and founder of Spark Strategic Science Consulting. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for being here today. It's my pleasure, Jenna. It's great to chat with you. Um, I'm a big fan of this podcast. You, you're doing some great stuff. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. It's, it's always one of those things where you're not sure if you're, you're talking to um, talking to no one or talking to someone. So um, I appreciate that you've been listening along. That's great. Um, so Sarah, just to start us off, if you could share a little bit about you know, who you are, what you do, um, and maybe a bit about the the journey that led you to where you are today. So sure. Yeah. It's funny because when I tell people I work in science communication, they don't really know what that means. They're like, are you research behind marketing or, um, some people understand it's communicating science, but they don't really know how that shows up. And you know, science communication shows up in so many spaces from communicating around public policy to science centers and museums, to educational television, um, to nonprofit work around, uh, environmental or health issues. Right now we're, we're in need of a lot of science communication around the pandemic that we're in and as well with the climate crisis. So today more than ever, there's a need for really um, quality science communication, strategic science communication that is going to have the desired effect that you want to have on your audience. And that's sort of been my passion is trying to understand the science behind communicating science so that we can, you know, um, help people to understand the world around them and help change attitudes and behaviors um, in order to move forward on important issues. And again, I brought up the pandemic, but I think that this is a a perfect example of the need for strategic science communication. Um, Right now, I mostly work with producers of educational media to help them ensure that their communication is accurate and that they're having the the impact on their audience that they're they're hoping for. Um, So I'll review pitches for uh, educational television shows or online apps. Um, I'll edit content for accuracy and to make sure that it's being written in a way that it's going to support comprehension. So stuff like that. And it's really fun to get to work with these different teams and different organizations and to see different ways to apply my background and experience to, to help them accomplish what they're hoping to do with the public. Yeah, that's amazing, Sarah. I This is making me think back to my own sort of journey in this space. And my undergraduate degree is in environmental science. My, my master's is also in, in science, um, kind of around sustainability and environment. And, um, you know, 
researchers put their heart and soul into their, their work. Um, and yet still as someone with a university, you know, undergraduate degree and masters, um, it's really challenging to understand the complexity of, of, of research and, and the way things are shared. And that's because they are complex issues. Um, so it's interesting how you were chatting about that need for, um, you know, the need for assistance in terms of this is really important and really valuable information. How do we make it accessible um, to the general public, the general population or youth or mm-hmm. elders or like folks who maybe have different varying levels of knowledge and access to technology too? Absolutely. And that's that's great that you highlighted the fact that there are all these different audiences. You know, we often talk about the public as like this sort of lump sum conglomerate. But really, I mean, that can be um, a really bad way to start out your communication if you're lumping everybody in together, because more and more as we understand better how people process information and really want to come to the table to listen, you really need to meet them where they are. And and that depends on their prior knowledge, on their prior experiences. And so it requires a much more tailored approach to your communication. It requires a lot more thought about who is your audience and how do you meet them where they are and meeting them on their level. And I, I, I know when I've came into this game as, as a scientist, um, it was all about, here's what I think people should know about and they'll be excited about. And, you know, a couple decades later, um, we know much more that you have to start with, well, who is my audience and what are they interested in and what are they, what do they need to hear about? What are they going to want to hear about and try to meet them where they are. And I think that that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks for a lot of people who are trying to communicate with the public is not really getting to know their audience first and sitting down to have a conversation with them. Um, The great thing is that I feel like the field is making incredible strides in terms of identifying different audiences, um, identifying biases, identifying groups who are frankly, not being invited to the table as part of the conversations and finding better ways to engage with them, taking a much more of a dialogue approach where there's this two-way flow of information between the audience and the communicator so that we're sharing ideas and perspectives and insights. And from that, we're building up trust and mutual understanding. So I think it's a really exciting time for science communication and, um, I've seen, you know, the field of science in particular has really done a 180 in terms of the value they place on science communication because I'm, for many of us who have been, you know, working in the sciences for a while now, you know, maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of value placed on public outreach. But today, it's a huge component, even in grant applications, um, that public impacts piece is so important for funding because you need to show how your work is is, um, being translated to the public so that it's actually, you know, having an impact in the real world and on the people whose money might be funding, funding this work. So I think it's a very exciting time. There's still tons of work to be done, but I think it's really promising to see. Yeah, I would agree. And my um, career and knowledge of this stuff is is 
not not very long, but even in in my time, you know, going from an undergraduate student um, to working to to a master's student, and and you know now working again, I've seen that shift so much. And even in terms of like the collaborative way that we approach research, right? It's less about hmm. studying something or studying people, and more about okay, how do we co-study this? How do we learn from? you know, people's knowledge and, and lived experiences in how we, how do we integrate that into our, our scientific understanding. So I agree, it's, it's promising. And it's definitely come a long way, which is really exciting, because as you chatted about earlier, um, actually, before we kind of hit record, there's not, you know, there's not been a time, maybe there has been, it sure doesn't feel like it, but there's not been a time where science communication has been more important than right now. Um, and having, having the general public in quotation marks, but mm-hmm. having people be able to understand this is, is really, really key. So, um, yeah, that this is great. Sarah, how did you, like, this is such, maybe it's not, it doesn't seem like it for you, but for me, this seems like a very, uh, unique niche you've you've sort of found yourself in. Um, h- how did you arrive at where you are today? Like, you know, was this always kind of on your path, or um, you know, what was the process that guided you, whether it be education or experience, that kind of led you into this work? That's a great question. It's so funny because I get asked that question all the time. People are like, wow, that's such a cool job. How how did you get to do that? And I'm going to start off by saying it was a lot of work and a lot of really checking in with what I cared about and where I felt like I could best apply my talents. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I started out working in research. Um, I was working in astrophysics, but I really wanted to, I felt like I wanted to make a difference on the ground and be more in contact with people. And I was so passionate about everything in astronomy and physics. I couldn't really decide which, which path to go down. So that's how I got into science communication. And I, I just loved sharing the excitement of discovery and sort of the wonders of science and helping, you know, people understand the world around us through science. And I just love that. And I thought that was cool. And I ended up as a staff astronomer at the Ontario Science Centre in in Toronto. And I, you know, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was a dream job. I had so much fun working there, incredibly talented and passionate people there. And it was wonderful. But over the course of my career, after, you know, years and years of working really hard and caring so much about what I did, you know, sometimes you put your heart and soul into something and you don't quite have the end result that you hoped, or you don't quite have the impact or people don't quite respond in the way you wanted to. And over time, I became more and more interested in the science behind science communication. So um, what is it, you know, how do people process information? What motivates them to want to learn? And how do we get to behavioral change, which we know is a really difficult thing with the public, especially on these complex issues like climate change um, and public health. So I really wanted to dig into that deeper. So I ended up going back to school and doing a graduate degree in science communication and public engagement. And in that, you know, I'd worked in the science communication space for years. um, And in that, I had, you know, learned a lot of the tools of the trades and um, felt pretty confident at 
at a lot of things, but climate change was this topic, which was just like this really complicated area where communicators were not breaking through. We have the solutions that we need to tackle climate change, but we just don't have the public or political response that we need. So for me, I viewed it as a communication problem. And I thought, well, if I'm going to really dig into any topic at grad school, I want to dig into climate change and how to communicate it in a way that's effective. And, and also, too, I couldn't see really investing my time and efforts in anything that has more significance and weight than climate change. It's it's an area that I felt like, you know, if I'm going to dedicate my my background and experience to something, it, it should be this because, frankly, there's nothing more important right now. So um, I, I focused on communicating climate change and I had also um, in the, in the, at the same time uh, had kids and we ended up moving uh, back to New England to be closer to family. And so I decided to become a consultant and I had been working on the side in addition to my job, doing a lot of work in educational television and educational media, communicating science to children and families. And so I really love this, the, the impact and the reach of television in order to reach really broad audiences on a scale, which you just frankly can't do with museums and science centers. So I wanted to sort of combine that, um, that knowledge and the, the tools I was acquiring for communicating climate change and applying it to that medium of television and digital media. And I had already had a few clients um, working that area on general science programming, but I really wanted to step up my work in that area of, of climate education and engagement. So um, that's sort of how I pivoted. And it was, you know, it was pretty intense and a lot of work. I ended up um, co-producing a show while doing my master's and having two young kids. And so there was like this black hole of about two years <laughs> where, <laughs> um, you know, it was just basically work and survival, but I'm on the other <laughs> side of that now. And I've, so it's, um, it's been, it's been a, a lot of work for sure, but I am super thrilled and I uh, just feel so fortunate to be able to do what I do today. It's, it's a real joy. That's amazing, Sarah. I love that. Um, and thank you for sharing. I know a lot of our listeners, you know, they hear about these different unique and cool careers and, and so many folks, especially young folks, um, you know, they, they have this idea that there's this, uh, straight line or, you know, stepped out cobblestone path that leads directly to something. And, um, your story, similar to so many folks that we've had on the podcast, is definitely not that way. Um, and I think it's important to kind of share that, that, you know, doing this kind of work is sometimes just, you know, it's a, a series of choices and then kind of jumbling together, you know, what you know and what you're good at with kind of what you're passionate about and how you want to serve um, throughout your career. So, and that's definitely, definitely sounds like the way that you approached it, which is great. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and I just want to add, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people, there are more and more people um, are interested in communicating science, and especially young people who are getting into the environmental sciences and science. And I think because it, it has that social dimension. And I, I know from my experience in research, like, I could go for days, you know, 
debugging a software program or processing data and not see or talk to anybody. And that, that social dimension where you, you share your passion for what you're, do, you're doing or your ideas or having those conversations with people, that is just so rich and rewarding. And it, and it fills a really, that sort of soul component of your work. And so I know that more and more um, people are becoming interested in sharing science and getting into science communication. And the number one piece of advice I have for people is just start communicating, um, whatever you feel comfortable with. If it's, if it's having, you know, on Twitter, if it's, um, creating posts on social media, if it's giving talks at a local library, if it's, if it's giving talks at your local school, finding local organizations that you can partner with, at the same time, try and learn about some of the science behind science communication and, and uh, techniques and best practices in the field. But it's really something that you have to practice to become good at. And I've been doing it for almost 20 years now, and I'm still learning like every single day. And I, I am still just blown away by how much work there is still to be done. And I think it's really important that you approach it with, you know, that you're humble in your approach and that you really respect your audiences and always do your best to really think of put them first and um, try to reach them on their level and, and just practice. So um, if you're out there and this is something you want to get into, those are some, those are some tips I have. That's great. Thanks, Sarah. And I think yeah, that's just, it's a good reminder for all of us actually in our work to be, to be humble and, and I guess more open about the people we're trying to reach and audiences we're trying to reach, because we all do that sometimes. I think where we sort of take for granted what we know to be true or know to be um, real. And I think it's important to kind of take into consideration how many different aspects of our lives influence that that may be different for someone else and so just kind of reconnecting with that is is really important in in any of the work that we do so that's awesome um Sarah I wanted to ask you so we've chatted you know about this this climate change piece but um I wanted to to hear so for two reasons, um, you know, your sort of definition of sustainability one thing we've done on the podcast is to kind of try to create, almost like a living definition of the term sustainability, because I think it's, it's, um, well, it's an overused term. Like I think people hear it a lot in different contexts mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's definitely complex for sure. Um, so I've, I've always kind of retained that question in the podcast as a way to sort of create a living definition. If you listen to each episode, you almost get to hear um, a bunch of different perspectives on the term sustainability. So I'm curious to hear about um, how you define or describe the term sustainability and, and sort of how you use that lens in, in your communication work. That's a great question, Yon. As you're describing this, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool to make a word cloud of all of the responses you've had to this question to see what, what pops up the most? That would be really interesting. Um, so for me, as I've, again, coming from a place of learning about communicating climate change with the public and public engagement, I really arrived at a place where 
sustainability for me is about communities working together around common values like protection of the things that they love, the responsible use of resources, and helping to sure that, ensure that everyone is safe from the impacts of environmental change. And I think that that community piece has to come first because we can't have sustainability unless we have community level action. And um, more and more, my work focuses on community building and encouraging um, people to feel part of something bigger than just the individual actions. That's awesome. I should put a word cloud together. That is a great idea. Um, but you know what, in your definition, um, so the term community has obviously come up in other definitions for sure, but the way that you sort of structured your, your description as kind of the community being the first piece, um, I haven't necessarily heard anyone discuss it in that way. And, um, that's, it's so critical. And I think, We've seen that change as well, which is really great. I know my work is in um, renewable energy and community energy planning, and even the concept of community energy planning. It used to be where, you know, the expectation was that governments and um, leadership did planning when it came to energy. Um, it wasn't something that happened at the community level. And that's been sort of a 180 degree flip over the last five or 10 years of, you know, communities taking ownership, people taking ownership um, of, of that future and wanting to be a part of it and sort of democratizing um, how we do different things at a community level. So um, thank you for that definition. And I think that's a good reminder in terms of um, all of the work that that all of us do, but that community piece is so key if we're ever going to achieve anything meaningful meaningful when it comes to sustainability and the environment, that piece has to be there for sure. Yeah, and I, I think people can feel so overwhelmed by the scale of the challenges that we face um, with the climate crisis in particular and you know, if they know, everybody knows that if they change a light bulb, that's not going to create the kind of action that we need to tackle this big looming crisis. But when you show them examples of community level solutions, um, like um, community choice aggregation models for their, for clean energy, for example, or a new network of bike trails so that people can bike instead of drive. When they see those community level solutions, those are the types of things that take them from a pl place of despair to hope and to feel like, okay, we can, there are things happening on a scale which actually can make a difference. And that's a really important piece of public engagement because if people are feeling overwhelmed and depressed, they're they're not gonna they're gonna throw their hands up and they're not gonna take action. And I think that that's been one of the real um, sort of uh, if we could go back and redo the the last twenty years and the way we've communicated some of these issues is we've presented this big, we've approached it from, um, you know, this perspective of doom and gloom and it's this a crisis, which it is obviously, but it's been presented in a way that's so overwhelming that it's left a lot of people just feeling disempowered and like, what the heck, where do I even start? This is way bigger than anything I can do personally. So, um, I think that 
approaching it from community level solutions is is so key and so important in our work. And like you said, it's an, it's really inspiring to see communities stepping up to the plate because most people, the vast majority of North Americans want the government to take action on climate. But as you said, policy um, and getting legislation through can be impossible. So communities are just doing it at the local level. And that's where you can have in some, in a lot of ways, it's where you can have more impact because locally you can see the solutions that are going to work for you and your community. And it's, there's definitely no one size fits all approach. And so in a lot of ways, this happen, has to happen at the community and the regional level. Yeah. And I think those big, ex- exactly. And I think those big changes, they obviously are super important and necessary, but there is a lot of there's a lot of change that can happen and will happen when communities, when it's community led, and that puts a lot of pressure um, higher up to make some some actionable changes as well. So um, it's interesting. I, I've been working with a community lately who's a very small community, like 350 people, and you know they're working on this climate change project, and it's just been incredible watching what they do, because it seems like such simple things like, you know, small food security initiatives around community gardening and raising chickens and these different things. And then, um, you know, some small rooftop solar and working on um, their approach to energy security and all these types of things that I know they often say, oh, you know, this is such a small thing. But then you look at all of the small things that this community has done as a whole. Um, and if you think if every community, regardless of whether there are 350 people or 350,000 people, if that was sort of the approach that they were taking, um, what a drastic change and, and meaningful impact that would have. And so I'm always trying to encourage them because they they think of things as just it's it's small, like we're a small community, but the the impact that they're having a on the people who live there, like it's just been such a beneficial thing for the local people. Um, But then if that were scaled to other communities, that's, it's incredible. So um, again, seemingly small things, but they do have a really meaningful impact. And, and oftentimes it's, it's the higher up governments, whether the larger municipalities or provincial or territorial state governments, and then our national governments start to see those things. It's, it does put pressure in a way to say, Hey, if, if communities of 350 or 350,000 people are making these things happen because they know it's important, then maybe there's a bit more we can be doing at the top as well. Absolutely. And you knew you touched on something else that's a really um, key sort of byproduct of all of this is that with each project, as people come together and pool their talents and resources, you're building this social fabric and this network that can then be applied to another problem or another challenge the community is facing or something else. So it's it's community building in itself that allows the community to be more resilient and responsive. So every time they tackle something, no matter how small it is, it's investing in the robustness of the community and their ability to respond to future future challenges and bigger challenges. So um, I think, yeah, I think that's just such a great example. And some of the most inspiring stories right now are coming out of communities like that. And they're building the they're building the world and the future that they want to live in, and 
that's pretty incredible. Um, I live in a small town and I'm involved in one of the town committees um, uh, responsible for open space. And it's been pretty amazing. I've never been involved in local politics before, local government, but you can have a real impact if you if you want to do some work for your community and, you know, and really help out, you can't, if you want a certain future for yourself, you can't really leave it up to the powers that be, you really do need to get involved and, um, you know, help out in whatever way that you can to help, to help create that reality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That your last point there, Sarah really leads into, um, a final question I have for you around, you know, I know a lot of folks listening to this podcast don't really know where to start and they do care um, and they want to be involved in things. They want to make a difference either in their personal life or in their community, but they're just not sure where to start. And I'm wondering if you have any advice or recommendations for people who are passionate about this stuff and just yeah, just need a bit of a boost in terms of, you know, where they could be actively involved, whether they work in this field or any, any field, no matter what their lifestyle is like. Absolutely. So um, one of the best places to start is just to talk to people, share your ideas, share your concerns, know you're not alone, but also um, this is a way to get ideas and inspiration from other people around you. Also public discourse has been shown to really shape public thinking, and this leads to um, public demand for policy. So talking about it is one of the most important and impactful things that you can do is, 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 is sharing this with your friends and family in your community. Um, if you're feeling overwhelmed, uh, one of my favorite resources is a book called Project Drawdown. Um, and to see the types of actions that will have the biggest impacts on global warming. There's TED Talks. Um, there's a book that was a New York Times bestseller, but it was um, by Paul Hawkins and his colleagues. And they basically went through and evaluated and then modeled the top 100 uh, actions we can take to help take action on global warming. And it really provides a roadmap for, for action. You know, where are we going to get the biggest return on our investment? It's a terrific resource. I can't recommend it enough. Um, we touched on this earlier, but look to your community for inspiration. Find groups that are working to address these challenges. Uh, if you can volunteer, if you're unable to volunteer, try to support them financially in any way that you can. Um, another group that I'm a big fan of right now is Climate Base. I know a lot of us with the pandemic are reevaluating our lives and careers, and Climate Base puts out a regular newsletter on. Uh, climate news and job opportunities in the field of the environment and sustainability. So if you're looking to work in the field, um, there are now resources where you can get, just get job postings related to that area. Um, it's also really important, get to know where local politicians stand on the issues and um, what sort of policies are in the works. Really try to, if you can, you can stay up to, to, to speed on those things. And if there aren't any, um, policies, local policies in the works, write a letter to your representative and let them know your concerns. Surveys show that the vast majority of people in North America support climate mitigation measures, but we need to, you know, we need, we need to remind our leaders of this and um, sort of, you know, get action moving forward. 
And then vote with your wallet. Um, consumer spending accounts for a third of GDP and every dollar we spend is a choice and a vote in support of the way our products and our services are produced and delivered to us. So that's really important. And then at the end of the day, just focus on doing the best that you can. Obviously, there's no one size fits all solution. You know, not everybody might be in a position to be able to put solar panels on your roof, but you can contact your energy provider and sign up for renewably sourced energy at maybe a, a small increase in your and your rate. But it's a big step forward and it's sending a message to those providers that consumers do want renewably supplied electricity. So there's just so many things, but just the important thing is, is just start looking to your community, getting involved in your community and taking, taking action and taking whatever steps you can. Awesome. That's great, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I actually had someone on the podcast not that long ago that uh, mentioned a lot of things that you did and was kind of talking about how you know, we often take to social media as a, as a form of communicating things or where we'd like to see change. But I, I appreciate that you brought up, you know, writing a letter or calling your local government representatives because social media does not replace that. They still need to hear from us directly when there's things that we're concerned about or things that we want to see. And I think, um, you know, as young people too, it's easy to forget about that and think that, you know, being actively engaged in social media is the same as calling your your local government representative and it's not quite the same so it's important to kind of mm -hmm. to remember that and it's it's for the most part it's a pretty simple task and so if that's one way you can engage i think it makes it it is it does make a meaningful difference but um i wrote down some of the uh some of the books and things that you recommended there and i'll reach out to you afterwards i think it would be great to include some links to those in in the show notes for this episode so that folks can find um you know find where they can listen and read and, and learn a bit more about those so that's great but thank you so much sarah for taking the time to share today and to be with me on the podcast i i know i learned a lot and i know our listeners will too my pleasure anytime and keep up the great work. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.